You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being with us on a beautiful start to the week and a jam-packed news hour ahead. We have tons going on. We're keeping our eye on Vancouver right now, where shortly uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the independent MP for the B.C. riding of Vancouver, Granville, will make her announcements about what she plans to do. And then at the half hour, we have uh, Jane Philpott, the independent MP for the Ontario riding of Markham Stouffville. And we will find out whether or not they are going to be Greens or whether or not they just think to themselves, It's not that easy being green. Because it's not easy being green. And the odds are uh, no Greens. That's what the reporting is is saying right now. The reporting out is that neither... JWR or Jane Philpot will go to the Greens. We're going to keep you on top of that. Doug Ford is with us. Wow. And Doug Ford, what a day for Doug Ford as that government completely backs down. Just backs down completely. You heard this in the news on the plans to recto- retroactively cut funding to municipalities after sustained pressure now from local leaders led by John Tory. There's been warnings about devastating impacts on public health, on child care, on ambulance services. And today, the Premier, along with the Minister of Municipal Affairs, who will join us on the phone shortly, announced that they will not do that retroactive cutting. But the cuts are still coming. There are still reductions in funding to come. It's just that what the government had done is said, no, no, there's your cut. And all the municipalities said, well, we already set our budgets. Our budgets are done. We can't just go back in and, and, you know, do that. And so this was a real step down from the provincial government, uh, considering a sustained public relations war against John Tory from the government that had the premier on the airwaves all over the place last week. And I think they saw it, they looked at it, uh, the government, and decided, uh-oh. So here's Doug Ford. This is uh, seven. Uh, here is Doug Ford being asked about it today, about, okay, well, why didn't you just do this in the first place? The most important thing is we're a government that listens. Are we right a thousand percent of the time? I wish we were right a thousand percent of the time. Are municipalities right a thousand? No, they aren't. They aren't right a thousand percent of the time. But when we work together, uh, we can do some some really great great things. Uh, that was not an answer to the question. However, uh, I am interested in the one thousand percent angle because, and this leads me to my next clip. Doug Ford has, shall we say, a somewhat shaky grasp on math, because listen to this, when the Premier is asked about slumping poll numbers and whether or not that was the impetus and the reason behind these changes, here is what the Premier had to say about that. We're 10 times better off fiscally uh, than, than we were 10 months ago. Basically, the Premier saying that voters are going to judge him on the economy. 
do, do you believe that the GDP of this province, that the economy of this province has grown tenfold in 10 months? Steve Clark is the Minister of Municipal Affairs and is on the line. Let's begin with that, Minister. The economy's 10 times better off in 10 months. Is there a shred of truth to that, Minister? Well, the announcement we made this morning was uh, was pretty clear. Uh, talked about the fact that we are in a, uh, a fiscal hole that we inherited, and the best way to get out of it is uh, to work collaboratively with our municipal partners. And that was the whole point of uh, of the uh, the announcement this morning was to signal that uh, we're taking an approach uh, to work together to uh, to find savings that help uh, help the taxpayer. Well, that, was the, that was the impetus. Well, I think your answer pretty much confirms for me that uh, the tenfold increase or the ten times better is as fictitious as 1,000%. But I'm going to leave that behind and ask you the direct question that the Premier nor yourself seem to want to answer today, which is, why didn't you do this in the first place? Why didn't you talk to municipalities before you just stumbled into this? Well, we've had ongoing conversations, Alan, with Ontario's 444 municipalities. The first thing that I did as a minister uh, when I was sworn in was I, I changed the previous government's regime. We uh, we sit down every month with uh, with our, our municipal partners. In fact, to, to be honest with you, Alan, we, we meet with them far more frequently than monthly. We, we've had a very robust consultation. And, you know, when I met with the uh, Lumco mayors on Friday, they asked that uh, we would consider giving them the time. And that's exactly what uh, the Premier and I announced today. We've, uh, are are you I've, suggesting, Minister, that Friday was the first time that you heard from municipalities not, no, that I'm they not, would I'm like not, more time? No, 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 you know, I'm not suggesting that. I, I said I made it very clear on Friday at a LUMCO meeting that uh, we wanted to work with them for the in-year changes that were provided in this year's budget, which represented about a one percent or one cent on the dollar or less, uh, but that I would continue to advocate for them. That's what I said on Friday. That's what I continue to do. You know, we, we, we have a number of municipalities who have indicated that they want to work with us. We've established this audit and accountability fund, which a number of them are going to be using. We've it's not an audit. The municipal modernization fund of $200 million, which a number of them are very pleased to receive. And today's signal was that we're committed to balancing the budget in a responsible way, and we're going to work with our municipalities to make sure we do that. Okay, it's not an audit. It's a line-by-line review. I have a problem with you and your government constantly conflating those two. Those are two different things. I'm going to leave that to the side, though, because here is Joe Cressy, the Toronto City Councillor, I think pointing something, pointing out something that is uh, a problem going forward for your government. And here's Joe Cressy. What we've witnessed in the first 11 months of this government is that when they get it wrong, and they frequently have, based on public pressure, uh, they will reverse course. And so whether it was developing the Green Belt or autism funding or cuts to public health and child care, when people speak up and stand up, they do respond and I think that's a message to all Ontarians is that if you care about the future of this province and you care about your kids health and your kids child care then don't stay silent and don't sit on the sidelines make sure your voice is heard is that true do we just have to protest enough and you're going to reverse course that's one opinion from one city councillor I respect Mr. Cressy's right to have an opinion but over uh, the last several weeks uh, and months we've heard a number of municipalities who are reassuring our government that they understand the fiscal challenges that we faced. But more importantly, 
that they want to face those challenges together. And today was a signal by the Premier and I that there is only one taxpayer and the job of finding savings while protecting core services rests with every elected official in Ontario, Joe Cressy, Steve Clark, John Tory, every mayor, every councillor. We all have to work together. Autism, the green belt, municipal funding. Is your government fumbling all of these files? I will say to you this, Alan, I value my portfolio and the partners that I work with. I am a former mayor and a former CAO. I understand the challenges that a municipality has when they have a fiscal year set one way and their provincial partner has a fiscal year set a different way. You know, the good news is, I think, from our perspective, those in-year costs for land ambulance, public health and child care, we're going to park uh, those uh, those uh, cost-sharing changes that were in the budget, and we're going to sit down with our municipal partners. And I, I, I'm excited. I, I'm looking forward to this collaboration with Ontario's municipalities because, in the end, we're going to find savings, we're going to strengthen frontline services, and most importantly, we're going to protect mat- what matters most. Listen, I, I think credit where credit is due. Obviously, the government listened. But you point out that you have experience in the municipal field It's not like you didn't know about the budgets. Why did you not talk about this and figure this out before you made the announcement? I think the most important thing, Alan, uh, as we move forward, is the fact that we, we were responsive to municipalities. We do have a number of municipalities that are saying to us they want to work with us and they understand that we were elected on a, on a platform to clean up the irresponsible spending of the previous government. The fact that there is only one taxpayer and the fact that I, my pledge to mayors at every speech uh, that I've made since I've been minister is that, that we can't accept the status quo. The status quo is not what we need to have. We need to have a partner with our municipalities where we can sit down and find those efficiencies. And, and I think if you talk to most, uh, most councillors today, they're going to give you an example that, that they can see where we can move forward and have some collaboration. So I think this is a great announcement. I think that we're moving forward uh, in a collaborative way. It's good news for Ontario's 444 municipalities. And most importantly, Al, it's good for the taxpayer. Steve Clark is the Minister of Municipal Affairs and joined me on the line. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate you being on. Thanks, Alan. Anytime. We have breaking news coming out of Vancouver where Jody Wilson-Raybald has just announced her political intentions. Let's hear from Jody Wilson-Raybald. It is after much deliberation that I have decided to put my name forward for re-election in the 2019 election in Vancouver Granville. And in this election, I will be running as an independent candidate. That is Jody Wilson-Raybould making her announcement in British Columbia saying, quote-unquote, I will be truly free and that I will do politics differently. Running as an independent candidate in the fall election, and after all of that speculation of what she might do, it turns out that Kermit was right. It's not that easy being green. It is not easy being green. 
We will hear from Jane Philpot in about 10 to 12 minutes' time, and I am going to guess that she, as well, will be running as an independent. That is a blow to Elizabeth May, who has been riding high in the polls, and there has been much speculation about whether or not those two would join the Green Party for this fall's federal election. That is not going to happen. All right, let's talk raps, shall we? And I want to take you back to Game 1 in Milwaukee. Uh, After Game 1, I was in Milwaukee. Now, I traveled there to cover the game. And you'll recall that the Raptors lost that bit of a heartbreaker because it seemed like we had it and that it slipped through our fingers. And it's my job to cover these things. So part of my job was to go out and stand there as the fans, as the Milwaukee Bucks fans, roared out of the stadium, elated with their win. And I stood in there, and I did something that was probably not the wisest, public safety-wise, but here, here I am telling truth to the Bucks fans in Milwaukee. And here they are, the Bucks fans, celebrating. Oh yeah, whoop it up, that's okay. You enjoy your moment. Yeah, you enjoy your moment. It's not going to last. The moment is not going to last. And I was right. The moment did not last. It lasted for one more game when the Bucks whooped us in game two. And then after that, sayonara. Good night. Here again is me making a prediction to the Bucks fans and letting them know really what's going on. We were playing some Bucks great D. And... No, 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 no. I just saw one moment. No, no. Raps in seven. Raps in seven. Just had to correct some people. And I am so happy to say that I was absolutely incorrect on that one. It was Raps in six. I had Raps in seven the whole way. I was calling it. And I'll tell you this. Uh that I would have had to been going back to Milwaukee just like the team. So I would have been going back to Milwaukee. I would actually be in Milwaukee now, uh, you know, trying to churn out some more content uh, in advance of Game 7, which would have gone tonight. And I'll just tell you a little personal story about myself real quick. I'm getting married in August. And yesterday was my fiancé's shower. Uh, hosted by my mom and her mom, really sweet. And I don't know if you know these things. I did not know this prior. But the deal is, is you got to show the groom, you're supposed to do like a surprise show up at the end and bust in. This is the thing you do, apparently. And so I did that. But if, if the Raps had lost, I would have had to skip out on the whole thing. Now, I know some of you out there are saying, well, that might have been not too bad. But... No, it would have been terrible. So there we are in the third. We're down by 13, and I'm thinking, I'm going to have to pack. And the fiance is looking at me saying, you seriously are not going to show up at the shower? This is how you're going to start things off? You're going to start off in a deficit, pal. This is not good for you. And then, oh, my goodness. The fourth happens. And let's just hear some of the cheering and the honking that was going on outside my house. This is... Actually, you can hear me here. Just listen. So good. So, so great. Such a wonderful thing to see the city just absolutely erupt. Now, let me just give you a little bit of planning here. 
All right, get your, get your phone out. Not if you're driving, but get your phone out. Game one this Thursday, 9 p.m. right here in Toronto. Game two is Sunday, 8 p.m. Clear your schedule. No more Game of Thrones. You don't have to worry about that. Game two Sunday. Then game three, and I'm I'm expecting. I'm I haven't heard, seen the budget yet. I haven't actually seen it, but I'm expecting to actually travel to California for this for game three Wednesday. June 5th at 9 p.m. And then Friday, June 7th at Oracle for game four, 9 p.m. Morgan Campbell is a sports reporter for the Toronto Star and has written about the Raptors and joins me on the line. Hey, Morgan. Hey, how's it going? I am I am over the moon. I cannot. I just, I'm such a huge, huge fan, and I can't believe it. We are going to the finals, dude. Yeah, especially after the... Listen, you're smarter than I am because after the Raptors went down 2-0 against Milwaukee, I would not have predicted that they were going to the finals. If you had told me after the Raptors went down 2-0 against the team with the best regular season record in the NBA, that that series would end after six games, I would say sounds reasonable, Milwaukee versus Golden State in the final. But You, you would not have stood in there. Go. You would not have stood in there amongst the rampaging Bucks fans and corrected them and said, no, that your moment's not going to last. You would not have done that? No, heck no. <laughs> That's probably... You saw it coming. Listen, man, give yourself credit. You saw it coming, the rest of us didn't. Yeah, I think there's a certain element of credit, and there's a certain element of just plain old stupidity right that, there. <laughs> that's true. And from a, it's like arguing with fools, right? From a distance, it's hard to tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the two unknowns that we have here going into the series finals. And this is... I don't want to get deep into basketball lore here, because there's other radio stations if you're just a sports guy. But I want to give Absolutely. the listeners at home... You know, something that they can just throw out there, because it's Raps Mania out there, and we want to welcome all the bandwagoners. Man, it's not like hockey. You can come on our bandwagon anytime. Come on <laughs> on. But so help me here with these two unknowns that we have, and that okay. is the health of Kevin Durant, who is the superstar for the Warriors and was just playing lights-out basketball before his injury. I'm just getting caught up on that. As far as you know, Kevin Durant, uh, is not going to play early in the series. Um, like I'm just getting caught up because, like, when the when when the whole traveling circus arrives here later this week, we'll be able to ask. Yeah, we haven't been able to get to really right and see if see whether or not Durant is actually here. Uh, my understanding is that Durant and uh, Demarcus Cousins are not going to play early in the series, especially not the first game. And the question becomes for the Warriors. Can they can they beat the second best team in the league, uh, second best regular season team in the league without one of their top two players? Um, there's a school of thought that says the Warriors are actually better without Durant because they can go back to being the old uh, yeah the Splash Steph, Brothers come back Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond yeah. Green Warriors okay. exactly. Now, I'm not I'm, I, I don't I'm not sure I fully believe that. But here's but, here's the thing yeah. that you drop at a cocktail party if, yeah. if I'm right, Morgan. Is you say this? You say, man. Yeah, without Durant, I think we really have a shot. You just threw that in there, and then, but then, then you can always say, of course, the trouble is Warriors are still good without him. You just throw that in there, and you sound like a basketball genius. Yeah, well, even better, you say the trouble is without Durant, they go back to being the original um, dynasty Warriors who won it without Durant. You don't have Durant messing up the equilibrium with his need to take all these shots. Okay, here's so the now next. You, now you go two steps of fame basketball knowledge. All right, here's the next thing to help people out with. Just drop this in there. 
Just just say, man, if we can get OG back, if we can get OG back, would be solid. <laughs> just say that. If we can just get OG back, would be all right. What's the what do we know about OG Ananobi? I'm I'm just getting caught back up on the Raptors. I haven't been I haven't been with them through this series. Right. As far as I know, he's he's still on the sideline and. Listen, they've they've made this run through the playoffs without OG Ananobi. This is no disrespect to OG Ananobi, but the the comeback from the zero from the two zero deficit didn't come with any help on court help from OG Ananobi. So I don't see him. And again, especially because the 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 bench gets so short right. in these playoff games, I don't see him yeah. showing up and, and tipping the balance of this. Series. Yeah, but he he's a he's a key outside shooter. So if he can come back and drain those threes, especially when Danny Green goes cold. I mean, we listen, we just we absolutely lived and died with Freddie uh and Norm. And those are the two guys off the bench that just saved it for us. They absolutely saved the series for us. But if we had OG out there draining some trays, here's what you say. You just say, "Man, OG with that appendectomy. Love to see him back." <laughs> see, you just say that. Yes, 100%. And you're solid. Or, or Give me as, one as, more thing. Give me one more or, thing for, that I could just say that makes me sound like a basketball genius over the next couple of days. Oh, you hinted at it right there. Uh, Danny Green. Here's a guy who was hitting, I think, 43 44% of his three-point shots through the regular season. Like, If you can do that consistently, you can stay employed in the NBA like deep into your 40s. Hasn't done it in the playoffs so far, but you say if Danny Green can start shooting like he shot in the regular season, the Raptors have a chance. There you go. You hinted at it. Beautiful. Morgan Campbell is a sports reporter for the Toronto Star. Awesome to have you on. Thank you so much. Anytime, guys. Quickly, Doug Ford, what do the Raptors need to do? Guys, let's be positive. That's right. We need to be positive. And even if, even if we stumble in this series, remember this. Just shout this at the opposing team. And here they are, the Bucks fans, celebrating. Oh, yeah, whoop it up. That's okay. You enjoy your moment. Yeah, you enjoy your moment. It's not going to last. The moment is not going to last. Yeah, Warriors fans, enjoy any moment you might get. It ain't going to last. We have continuing breaking news on the federal political scene with an announcement from Jane Philpott. Jane Philpott, of course, a former cabinet minister and the MP for the Ontario riding of Markham Stouffville. What will she do this fall? Here's the suggestion, I think, that was taken most seriously by Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould. This suggestion. 
It's not that easy being green. They listened to a lot of people, but in the end, it was Kermit that convinced them that joining the Green Party was not a great idea. But I joke about Jane Philpott, but seriously, did do either of these candidates think that as an independent they have shots? I mean, that's not the way people vote in the end. I mean, it's they make a lot of news right now, and their signs will be up. And of course, Jane Philpott, you know, popular, and it is possible. But keep in mind that that's not the way people vote. In the end, people vote because they want their leader to be uh, their leader and their choice for leader to be prime minister. And if you vote for either Ms. Wilson-Raybould or Ms. Philpott coming this fall, that is simply not going to happen. And that is the truth, Ruth. Mr. Ford? Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Premier. How's about that news earlier today with that climb down with the... uh, Provincial government just saying, you know that whole thing? <laughs> Remember that whole thing that where we were going to change the budget and you had to do the whole thing? And then last week, and the premier was out and saying the whole thing about, yeah, it was easy to do. Forget about it. Never mind. Sorry. Our bad. Our bad. We, you can have the cash. But going forward, could you maybe just, our bad. All right? And then the people, like the parents of kids with autism are saying, we told you, like we just told you, all you got to do is scream and yell enough and they're finally going to, you know, they're going to turn around and reverse course. And I think there's a lot of people out there right now who are listening who are saying, this is the way that democracy is supposed to work, right? The government makes a decision. If it's boneheaded, then everybody says, you're a bonehead. And the government says, okay, sorry, my bad, and steps down from it. But the problem is, is that now we have... These series of my bads, and what do we got, Inspector Clouseau running the joint now? Stumbling around, you know, it just, I I think this is not not good news for the government. It's good news insofar is that now the pressure is off the John Tory-led offensive against the government, which they knew they were losing. That 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 maybe has gone away for the time being, but... The other problem is going to be how do they actually get spending under control? And that raises a real big question, which is politically, how important is that? You see that the federal government has just doubled down on deficit spending. We have a deficit over the horizon for as far as the eye can see. And even the provincial government is being very coy about how it will bring to balance Uh, I think six years is the timeline to bring to balance in the province, but we already had the financial accountability officer saying there's all kinds of things that they have not yet announced. And I want to bring in Jared Bernstein, who's a senior fellow uh, from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, to give a higher-level look at this as a North American, maybe even a worldwide thing. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for being with me. Well, thank you uh, for inviting me. Jared, how important is deficits and how important is deficit spending in the eyes of voters? Well, in the eyes of voters, deficit spending has never been as important as most politicians think it is. Uh, and in many ways, the public has been uh, ahead of uh, both economists and a lot of political folks on this. Now, to be clear, a lot of politicians complain about the budget deficit until they really want something uh, that's going to be deficit financed, and then they kind of pipe down about it. So it's been a very confusing ride. I think the economics on this at this point are pretty clear. Uh, Budget deficits are not nearly as damaging as people thought they were, uh, but they still matter. And 
you know, in this province, we have the sort of talk, well, we got to get it under control, we got to get it under control. But at the same time, you know, there's mixed messages with, well, but then we're going to, you know, cut taxes here and, and reduce government revenue. So how does a government balance those sort of things and expectations from voters? Well, I think the problem in terms of voters' expectations is really quite profound, and that is for decades, politicians, more here than there, but throughout North America, have told voters that they can have pretty much whatever they want without really paying for it. And if you're a voter, that just sounds pretty good to you. And that's one of the reasons, especially in our country, we have such persistent budget deficits, because politicians talk a lot about cutting spending, but in fact, uh, when when, when push comes to shove, at the level of 40,000 feet, cutting spending sounds pretty good. At the level of the community center in my town or the park uh, or a public service that I greatly value, retirement security, publicly provided health care, when you get down to that level, spending cuts aren't so, uh, aren't so easy, whereas revenue cuts uh, come a lot easier. And so uh, our, our problem is in, in the U.S. is less that we have out-of-control spending, and much more that we're collecting way few revenues than we should, especially given the conditions in our economy. There has been so much talk, and we're going to run out of time, but I really want to ask you about this, about a resurgence of the left and a resurgence of socialism in the United States. Here recently we had the the premier standing up in, in our legislative house saying, you know, socialism is dead, it's failed, it's been proven to be to be dead. And yet we see this persistent rise in the left. Does that have something to do with this constant promising that we can have it all? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think it has more to do with the fact that uh, elites, and here I'm talking about governments throughout the globe, are just not trusted the way they uh, perhaps used to be. And on this issue of fiscal policy, uh, it's a prime example of of people warning that uh, forever that the deficit was going to hurt them through high interest rates or uh, unsustainable borrowing. That hasn't happened. Uh, And so some people have convinced themselves that, hey, you can just spend freely without any constraint. But uh, uh, from an economic perspective, uh, that, that is ultimately going to prove to be false. Jared Bernstein is so fascinating to uh, talk about this stuff because there was a long time in this country where the deficit was the devil, and it doesn't seem to be that case anymore. (laughs) Thank you, Jared. True. Thank you. Money talks, money shouts, don't take much to hear. Like it or not, you need a lot if you're gonna make a life down here. So a lot of big news over the last hour. We have heard uh, confirmation now from both uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott. Both will be running as independents in the federal election in the fall. I just read this uh, tweet here from David Aiken, who was our senior political uh, correspondent, that says, uh, he's quoting Jane Philpott here, White goes with everything, unquote, says Jane Philpott, explaining she will work with any party. Looking back uh, also at... Uh, Miss Wilson-Raybould, who apparently also wore white, and I will just point out that the federal election is after Labor Day, and that is going to be awkward. It's going to be awkward. Just say that. Also, we had that uh, walk back from the Ford government earlier today. Doug Ford. Promises made, 
Promises kept. Promises perhaps maybe just backed off a little bit because people were real upset. Let's quickly listen to Joe Cressy, who is talking about the fact that the government has now changed plans in terms of the retroactive funding cuts. What's he saying, Joe Cressy, at City Hall? Uh, This is a tremendous victory uh, for the people of Toronto and Ontario. Uh, And to the tens of thousands of individuals who signed petitions, made phone calls, knocked on doors, uh, to mayors from across this province, to chairs of boards of health who spoke up. I think this has demonstrated that when this government makes the wrong decision, the people of this province have a role to play All in right. making them reverse it course. It is uh, Joe Cressy, if you were listening earlier in the hour, it's Joe Cressy essentially repeating what he said earlier, which is this is a victory, but saying that this is a victory for the people and this is a victory for protesting the Ford government and that's how you get them to overturn things that you don't want. And, ladies and gentlemen, it will be a tough go for the next couple of years for the Ford government because of this. And there will be sustained campaigns against anything this government tries to do, largely in just simply because of the number of times they've already reversed course. You just can't pull this many U-turns without getting pulled over. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. I want to uh, talk about tourism now. I do love just traveling out of the way places. I will tell you about a great trip I took, and this is going back a couple of years. I, I went to Turkey, and I spent like three weeks just traveling through Turkey. And at one point, I was in a small coastal city uh, on the Mediterranean, and this thing, that, that all across the landscape were these partially built buildings. And if you've been to Greece or you've been to Turkey, often you'll see these sort of buildings that still have rebar sticking out of them so they can add more buildings later. And apparently it's some kind of some kind of tax thing that they do this for. But my point was is that this town that I had been in five years earlier had been a quiet, unassuming fishing village. And now it had exploded in tourism because so many Russians now were coming, so much Russian money, Russian money were coming to Turkey. And Europeans especially were being, you know, attracted by cheap airfares. The British were coming. Uh, and so now all of a sudden this little quaint little town was destroyed. It was gone. It was essentially now just blocks, cinder blocks upon cinder blocks of development trying to cash in so quickly on the tourism money. And it made me think, like, well, by coming here, have I, have I contributed to this? Have I contributed to the loss of you know, what was a beautiful Seasound town? Is it my fault? And to talk more about sustainable tourism, I'm joined by Rachel Dodds, who joins us on the phone. Hey, Rachel. Hello, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. When you make your choices about where you go, do you think about that kind of thing? I do think about sustainability quite a lot. Yes, I do. And I think so everybody needs to. And so what does that scratch off then your tourism go-tos? Are you just saying I am not going to go do an all-inclusive in Punta Cana because that thing is not contributing to sustainable tourism? I think that's a really hard question for many people to ask, because if you're going with grandma who wants to go to the all-inclusive, are you going to not go so that your kids don't see grandma, or are you going to go and feel guilty about staying at an all-inclusive? So I don't think the question is quite as easy as you as you pointed out. But you could go to an all-inclusive that's more sustainable than another one, or you could ask the questions about what they're doing for environmental protection, or how many local staff do they hire at this particular all-inclusive, do the tours that you that you do from your all-inclusive? Are they doing 
better. So I think you can always be more sustainable. I don't actually think any tourism is 100% sustainable. I think that's that's part of my issue with it is, you mean, the whole point is, you know, if you're bringing people in, it's difficult to keep it sustainable. I recently returned from Chile to a trip uh, to the Atacama Desert. And in that area where water is difficult, where erosion can essentially destroy the area, They've tried to do as much as they can to keep the yahoos and that kind of element out, but it is difficult for these developing nations, not that Chile is that, but other developing nations when, you know, that money is dangled in front of them. Well, especially when it takes an average of 1,800 liters of water per person per day for a five-star hotel. So that becomes a development and a political issue at the end of the day. Do you want to create jobs and at what cost and to whom? So then how is it? that we make these decisions. Guide me through this, because I love to travel, and I love to travel, you know, interesting places, but I don't want to contribute to the degradation of the planet. As a, as a, as a tourist, you mean? Yeah, as a tourist. Well, I think there's a number of things you can do. So you can go, there's a lot of lists online. I have one on my website. You know, how do you be a more carbon conscious traveler? How do you be a more responsible traveler? But if you're going to a developing nation, you need to understand that they probably don't have recycling. So get rid of all your packaging before you start. Make sure you eat local food. If you're going to choose a place to stay, try and choose somewhere that's local rather than a chain so at least the money stays in the local economy. Uh, If you're going on a tour, ask your tour operator, right? Tourist boat with their wallets. Ask your tour operator what they're doing that's more sustainable. And if they can't answer you, chances are they don't know what it means. So you can do a number of those things, simple things. If you have to fly, I mean, if you can take the train or or take a bus, then your carbon is, is going to go way down. But if you do have to fly, fly direct because the amount of carbon you'll save on that. Uh, never buy endangered species, products. You know, if you can't buy a, an alligator skin bag in Canada, why would you think that it's okay to do that somewhere else? Pretty much any behavior that wouldn't be acceptable to your great Aunt Mary is probably not acceptable anywhere you go. So those kinds of things you can do. I fear my great Aunt Mary. Thank you. Uh, Rachel Dodds is the Director of Sustaining Tourism, uh, professor at Ryerson University. Thank you so much for being on the program. No worries. And if you'd like to learn about over-tourism, there's a new book that just came out on that very issue of what you were talking about in Turkey, and that becomes a political issue. Thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. We are out of time. We will just leave the last word to Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi, how you feeling? I'm a fun guy. We'll see you tomorrow.